Welcome to Best Picture This, where it is always Oscar season. I'm Mike. And I'm Brian. In this show, we reevaluate every Best Picture nominee from the 21st century and decide whether to keep it or kick it from its Oscar pedestal. But let's not mess around here, Brian, because I have bigger things than Georgia on my mind today. Like, how about a brand new miniseries on the films of 2004? Are you ready? That sounds exciting. I'm glad you didn't drop too many more Ray Charles (laughs) music references in there because I probably wouldn't know too many of them. Yeah, I thought stay with the biggest (laughs) two and just keep it to two puns any more than that. I'm overstating my welcome. But Mm -hmm. in 04, Brian, the nominees for Best Picture were Sideways, Finding Neverland, The Aviator, Million Dollar Baby, and today's movie, Ray, directed by Taylor Hackford. Here's the trailer. Ray, I ain't gonna beat around the bush with you. You going blind. The doctor saying nothing they can do, so we gotta do it ourselves. Remember how many stairs there were? Four. Good. Now what we gonna do, I'm gonna teach you three notes. And this is the first note right here. Play that. How y'all doing tonight? Charles saw the world in ways no one could imagine. I hear like you see, like that hummingbird outside the window, for instance. I can't hear her. You hear that? Her heart just gave to beat. <laughs> he broke barriers no one thought possible. If you want me to do something special, I'm going to need my own band. Okay, but you're going to have to make it work, Ray. Yeah, well, I'm going to make it do what it do, baby. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Played what no one else dared. Nobody's ever combined R and B and gospel before. You're turning God's music into sex. All of y'all going straight to hell. If all of y'all want me to keep playing, let me hear you say Amen. amen. You know I had my eye on y'all, man. <laughs> he feels a risk because he figures that's the way to tell she's good looking or not. Feeling Ray? Groovy, baby. You give your hand to me. Are those drugs worth losing everything? And I can honestly. Ray, this isn't some judge in Indiana. Our lawyers will do what they can, but. When I walk out that door, I walk out alone in the dark. I'm trying to do something that nobody ever done in music and business. giving you a state-of-the-art deal here. This is time producing my own records. I was wondering if I could uh, own my masters, too. Ray, we've never done that before. That's a better deal than Sinatra gets. Yeah. Jamie Foxx. Ray. A Taylor Hackford film. inspired you i am jamie fox is how do you describe jamie fox he's kind Uber of a, talented he's a renaissance man does a little bit of everything yep. and does so many things so well he does uh, he's like the guy that you would love to hang out with i think jamie fox won the best actor in a leading role oscar for his performance in ray um, it also the movie also won for best sound mixing and was nominated for uh, for four others best picture directing editing and costume design. Um, 
Jamie Foxx also was nominated in 04 for Supporting Actor, which is pretty rare for a collateral. Big year. Um, yeah. Only the second time in history has um, a man been, been uh, nominated for uh, two Oscar nominations in for two different movies. First was Al Pacino. Hmm. Okay. Um, <clears throat> Jamie Foxx is also the first person to have been nominated for three acting awards at the Golden Globes in the same year. Um, you add in a TV movie, Redemption, the Stan Tukey Williams story. He was nominated for that. So three. And then I th- he was in something else, too. Some I, I forget what the movie was. Buddy but, Cole. Was it that year? <laughs> no, it wasn't. No, it that wasn't year. that year. That but was, it was some... I just like to imagine that as your favorite <laughs> film of the 90s. Yeah, okay. Breaking all the rules. He won Best Actor at the BET Awards for 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 all that. Anyway. Big big year. He also the, this movie also won the Grammy for best compilation soundtrack. <laughs> That's cheating, we find all right? I, <laughs> totally cheating. Remember all those songs that we loved <laughs> for decades? They put them on one movie on one soundtrack. And who would have thought we liked that too? Um, Can I just say also with that trailer, it's sticking in my mind. I can't get it out. At the end, it says a Taylor Hackford film. His other movies, he did The Devil's Advocate in 1997, Proof of Life in 2000. And honestly, a lot of these, I, I, I'm not even familiar with. Blood yeah. In, Blood Out, Everybody's All American, um, White Nights. So you're saying it's not a big selling point, that it's a Taylor Hackford film? It seems odd that that would be sort really. of, you know, above the title. Indeed. The movie was, got an A plus on cinema score for our audiences. It was made for $40 million and the box office was 124. So I, I know yeah. you're pretty uh, you're pretty critical of movies that have a big budget, forty million. <laughs> but but do you think that paid off this time? I mean, eighty four million dollar profit that's pretty good. Hey, you know, that I think studios good. understand what sells, and <laughs> they nailed this one. And I'm not against movies having a big budget. Mm-hmm. I guess I'm against gloss for the sake of gloss. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm against uh, confusing gloss with creativity, hmm. innovation. And, and is there, um, is there uh, unnecessary gloss in this movie? It's a glossy film, for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I don't want to give too much away, though. All right. right. In, this, in this show, we will do our Farley Awards for the most awesome moment of the movie. We'll give our golden takes, and we'll ask each other one question that is designed to help us put on the shades of truth. In mm. fact, In fact, we're both wearing shades right now in the studio. Always, yeah. Or would that be disrespectful for this movie if we were really doing that that's I don't a good know. point we will imagine what might have been we'll talk trivia and the big reveal will you keep it or kick it from the oscar pedestal in 2004 but first but our first. farley awards mm-hmm. for the most awesome moment or moments mm-hmm. of the movie because mm-hmm. maybe there are several and in my case you there are brian because <laughs> i'm going to talk about the sound design in it's two just separate one, scenes it's just a tie for every moment of the movie for you <laughs> they're all <laughs> equally farley-ish but yeah i'm going to talk about the sound design in two scenes and one is where he's a child Ray, and he hurts himself and his mom does not help him. I like this because earlier in the movie, she tells him, you're going blind, nothing the doctors could do. And here's what's going to happen. I'm going to show you how to do something once. I will help you the second time. Third time, you're on your own because you need to learn how to do this stuff solo. So he, I think, is walking into their house. He trips on a step, falls down, starts yelling for her and crying. And she's standing sort of in the kitchen. She looks over and she doesn't want to help him. Mm-hmm. You know, she sort of stops herself from moving in his direction and just stays still and silent. And he kind of goes from crying to understanding that he's on his own to then trying to adapt to this new reality. And I like how the sound design kind of plays with 
his focus, you know, trying to orient himself to the room. He starts listening. I think he hears something, you know, on the stove simmering. He hears a little burning there. And then mm-hmm. he catches the sound of a cricket in the corner. And he's able to get himself over and catch that cricket. And then he has a moment with his mom. I like that. It's kind of good character stuff showing, not telling. That's good. And then I like toward the end when he's a little bit older we have another sound design scene where he kicks his background singers out of the studio so kind of his girlfriend is upset she's sort of causing a scene because you know she's a mistress she's not getting the attention that she feels like she deserves and he's not putting up with any of it so he just kicks them out immediately which shows us something about his temperament and sort of selfishness you know these relationships need to be on his terms he's the power man now he is the power man and I like that the movie doesn't shy away from the fact that he's just kind of a shameless womanizer and kind of a jerk and doesn't feel guilty about that really at any point during Mm -hmm. this movie. So he kicks them out. The people that he's working with are concerned, like, well, now we we wasted the day. What are we going to do? And he says, no, I'll just I'll sing their parts. So we get this kind of montage where we see him recording the soprano, the baritone and all these layers of the song stacking on top of each other. And it gives us this sense of you know, how a song is put together, that kind of construction. That was, I think, more of what I wanted in this movie, a little more of that behind-the-scenes stuff rather Mm -hmm. than just the highlights of his life and this idea that, you know, he has an idea, a stroke of genius. He nails it in one take and then, boom, magic, and this thing's a number one hit. I like this stuff that's kind of in the background a little more. Mm -hmm. These scenes are two good uh, examples of that. Yeah, it's it's interesting in a movie that is about an artist um, like this that, um, I guess what I expect more is to see a little more of the creative process. Yeah. And you don't get as much of that as I kind of wish that I had. A lot of benchmarks here. Like, mm-hmm. okay, mess around. That's how we got started. This yeah. is how we did it. And then it's just like, and then this song, and then that song. And remember George on my mind? But even with George on, on my or uh, I forget if it's that song or a different one, but when he, when he talks about doing country music, mm-hmm. um, and he just kind of, it seems like he just kind of came up with the idea out of the blue. And they went with it, and then the next thing you know, it's a number one. Yes, without really knowing, like how did he, how did he develop that idea? Um, he says he likes country music, you know, but and maybe maybe there were hints of, of it earlier. I mean, I know he's got. I guess that leads into my Farley Award. Yeah, well, one last thing yeah, before yeah. we go into that, because I, I think that you're onto something there, because it almost makes it seem like these songs were ready made in his mind yeah. rather than starting with a seed of something. Give me a melody and let's stack things on top of it. And then yeah. all of a sudden a song is forming and then you add a bridge. And that, that's a more interesting way to, to approach this construction, I think, than just, you know what, let's bring in a symphony. I'm going to nail out this, this piano melody real quick. I'll sing over it and then the song's done. What do we get there except for the feeling of um, remember that type highlights? You know, the... Um... I'm trying to think of the movie title. It's with Paul Dano in the at, about the Beach Boys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, hmm. love, I'll think of it. Love something. Well, yeah, but in that movie, they do such an amazing job of showing him in the studio, like yeah. building it, building it, and how it became this landmark um, thing. But uh, love and mercy, love and mercy. Yeah, I kept thinking love mercy, but I know that wasn't it. Love and mercy. Mm-hmm. Um, Paul Dano, I think, is great. By the way, he's good. But. Um, He's good or he's great. He's, he's got great, great moments. I, I like, he's got a good intensity about him. <laughs> you know, he, he's a little bit of a scene stealer. I think a little miss sunshine, little miss sunshine. There will there, be blood. Yes. Yes. Uh, I think I've said enough how great Paul Dano is. 
Um, <clears throat> anyway. <Looper. laughs> I don't remember him in Looper. Maybe that's a good counter argument. Oh, he's in there. And he's like, get away. I'll get, here's my blunder bus. He says something like that. <laughs> well, he's not usually the lead. The, the lead. Yeah. So he true. has to be a scene stealer. A I guess bit. so. Anyway, back to Ray. Um, what the, again, the idea that I think is maybe missing is we've, we've seen some movies so far in our 50 episodes. Congratulations All to right. us. Is, um, genius mode. You brought this up with beautiful mind. <laughs> yeah. What I didn't, I didn't see, I kind of wish I could have had a genius mode moment with Ray Charles. Like, yeah. how is he better than everybody in the room or in the world? Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that would be a way to kind of appreciate him in a new way. Um, I, I don't, I'm not that familiar with Ray Charles's music. I mean, some, my son asks Google to play, um, hit the road, Jack, my three-year-old asks hit the road, Jack, and he sings along with it. Nice. But, um, <laughs> um, so my Farley award, my favorite moment of the movie was actually at the funeral when, um, his brother died. At, okay. So he's a kid. And this is, I think, maybe where you get the closest to what I'm saying I was kind of hoping for in the movie is there's this gospel music during the funeral and people are kind of using it as a mourning tool, you know? Um, And there, you know, there's a lot of like in in the history of gospel music, I think it goes back to like sort of slave melodies and things that there was a mourning to it, you know, at the same time as a, a praise element, I think. But um uh, at at this funeral, there's this gospel music, and I could believe how that music that's part of your life as a young person can become printed on your memory and influence your future tastes and your life in general. And so he's mixing gospel with pop, spiritual, secular, and that was one of his innovations as a musician. And I didn't fully appreciate that until I saw the movie, and I was glad for that to understand like where he fits in music history more and how kind of you know, you, you heard in the trailer, people were like criticizing and saying, well, you're going to hell because, yeah, yeah. because you're mixing these things. But in a way for him, I think the gospel music was just like, it was part of every part of life. It wasn't only about church for Ray Charles as a kid. It mm-hmm. was about the funeral. It was about, it was about everything. So I think, um, that, that, that was a pretty powerful, um, uh, you know, illustration of, of how music intertwined with his life and everything. That's one thing that I think these childhood scenes do yeah. add because you don't we, like childhood scenes. <laughs> well, we're, we'll get into that in golden takes, but you know what I realized? Yeah. Are you going to hate on the aviator too? Because there's childhood to, to old. There's not much childhood in that. There I, isn't. Okay. I'm just glad because no, no, I'm no. a big fan of the aviator and I keep worrying that you're going to, you know, that, you're that, be that like opens with biopic. a flash that kind of shows that his mom was <laughs> yeah. oppressive and that's right. kind of it. I just had to get that but out anyway, of the way. The, the childhood <laughs> stuff here, I think that seeing that he does come from the country gives, it, it really informs that sort of rural to urban connection that you're talking about here with the music, how it, how it kind of combines these two elements with old and new, um, which I don't know if we need to see him, you know, living on sort of a farm to understand that 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 connection exists. Mm-hmm. But like you're saying, I think that it is it is nice to sort of give a little bit more context to how this style came to be in the first place. What made it special and um, daring in a way. Mm-hmm. Golden takes. Who goes first? All right, well, I'm just, I'm just gonna, yours, let's just go with the golden takes go because <laughs> I got to talk more about, the, about the, these flashbacks. So the story starts at the beginning with Ray as a kid, and we go all the way until his death at the end. 
But we have these flashbacks in the middle of his childhood. So my golden take is to cut every single one of this, these flashbacks in the entire movie. That's my golden take. The movie is essentially hitting these benchmarks that I talked about before. Highlights from Ray's life. And there are a lot of them. So let me just run through a few that I just jotted down. This isn't all of them. Meeting Quincy Jones. Being introduced to drugs. First gig at a dive. How he got his name. His real name. His real last name, Robinson, but Sugar Ray owns Robinson, mm-hmm. so they went with his middle That's name. I like that. Uh, why he wears hard bottom shoes, his brother's death, going blind, writing his first hit, and so many other songs, having babies. There's so, so much to cover. That doesn't even cap it. You know, that's only like a sampling of what mm-hmm. we what we touch on in this movie. So we have a whole adult life. What do we really need to know from his childhood to understand where he's coming from, what his motivations are? You had to know that his brother died yes and i think tragedy and i think that they want us to know also that he feels this intense responsibility to as his mom says never be a cripple she repeats this line thrice (laughs) she says it (laughs) not in not three times thrice that's how many times she repeats it thrice all in flashbacks (laughs) but that drive to achieve it's maybe the most obvious characteristic that we could derive as viewers yeah. from someone who is disabled, you know, is blind, who is Af- and is, is a superstar at anything. Don't you think that they have that sort of mm-hmm. something to prove? I don't think that we need it verbalized. And I do think it's interesting to see that he came from nothing, that he he wasn't born blind. I didn't know that going in. It's, a, it's a nice little thing to learn. But that's also pretty scary to yes. watch, watch the little kid, his eyes change and all that. And he's always rubbing him and there's water. You know, it's always weeping. That That's a pretty, pretty scary moment in the movie, I thought. Yeah. But I just don't think that these flashbacks add anything yeah. to this character that we can't understand from his adult life. And for a two and a half hour movie, you know, I'm big on trimming the fat when there is some, and that's, that's all fat to me. I enjoy when a movie can stick right to that two hour magical moment, that two hour magical time. Not not a tight 90. (laughs) I'm I'm okay with two hours. I I mean, just to be clear, I do. I don't have a problem with long movies as a thing. Yeah, you do. No, I don't. Aviator is long. Tell me one I, movie. The beyond, Aviator is The Irishman. The Avi- that's, that's like too what, long. What's that? Four and a half hours. I never even finished that one. Oh, I'm, I'm getting. I'm getting close. Eventually, I'll get to it in our 2019. Oh, that's, that's a mistake. That and Marriage Story, best movies of the year. Marriage Story was amazing. That might have been closer to two hours, I guess. Which one? Marriage Story. Yeah, I think it was. But I don't dislike long movies because they're long. I dislike when movies are long unnecessarily mm-hmm. or in order to make it feel a little bit more like an event or or something to be taken seriously and that's the kind of sense that i get from a movie like this that's like why it annoys you don't me. like important important movies that are i don't long. like self-important movies so Ryan. another thing that i thought was really well done was when he first opens his suitcase and he's packing and he feels the water hmm. okay that was great and actually i thought that that was the beginning of something that was going to get even weirder and 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 um, you know more scary. That that was a horror moment in the movie. Yeah, and I was I was really thinking because you you told me ahead of time you lied and how much you you thought I was going to love the movie. I thought that that moment was like wow, Mike's totally right. Yeah, this is going in crazy directions. He's having this hallucination and it's so real and so creepy, but. 
I, so wish, they, I, was, I wish they would have gone farther in that direction. I was going cool. to ask you about this as my yeah. as my sort of secondary question, because I do think that the, the main emotional thread going through this movie is the fact that he feels responsible for his brother's death, yeah. and we need to re- resolve that. So throughout, we get these sort of surreal touches, which are the only ones in the whole movie where he kind of imagines water yeah. because his brother died from drowning. So at one point, he reaches his hands into a suitcase. It's filled with water. We don't know what's going on there. Mm-hmm. Another time, it might be in a hallway and we are yeah. just kind of Two left. Or three times it gets the water thing. Yeah. So what do you think of that, that emotional thread, that sort of payoff of, you know, guilt and, and absolution. Oh. Were you into that? <laughs> <laughs> Did that work for you? <laughs> it worked for me that it was a sort of terrifying, crazy um, hallucination. Hmm. And I liked that, but as far as like the resolution where at the very end, the brother in this like dream state when he's in the, uh-huh. <laughs> you don't see Mike's body language right now, but he's kind of shaking his head. He's, he's slumping. Um, in, when he goes through rehab yeah. and they do some kind of, you know, interesting camera tricks and stuff, but to have him at the end, it's so predictable and so melodramatic that, that he says at the end, I forgive you. And the mother says, I forgive you. And it's so unearned. Oh, it's like totally unearned. Yeah. I mean, as though he had lived his life in a way that would warrant some absolution. He hasn't. He's been a druggie and a womanizer, you know, his whole life, basically, although he's been an incredible artist too. But what has, I mean, he hasn't really taken his role seriously as a father. No. um, Or as a husband at all. In fact, he's been terrible as a husband. So for them to say at the end, uh, we forgive you and it's not your fault. Yes, it wasn't his fault, but it, it felt like a very hollow and forced thread. Yes. And let's not forget that they're not telling him that. He is imagining yeah. that they are telling him this. Yeah. So the whole... That is interesting. That part about it is interesting. He has to forgive himself. And I, yeah. and I understand that. But but still, sort of the movie is asking us to, to feel yeah. a, a sort of redemption there. And not only is it unearned, not only is it him telling himself, I forgive you, it's not your fault, all this stuff, but man, they set it up. Like the first mm-hmm. time that we have this surreal <laughs> moment with the water in the suitcase, I'll admit too, I, I was like, okay, you have my yeah, curiosity. Let's nice. see where this is going. But then after- <laughs> Terry Hackman. After- Terry Hackman? Hackford. Hackford. Um, after sorry, sorry, a few repetitions of, of that, it starts to become very, very, very obvious that yeah. they are setting up something to pay off later. And it's then it becomes like a two by four to the face because mm-hmm. you're like, okay, when's this going to happen? With a nail coming out of it. Yeah. And the same thing with his mother telling him in the flashback, you know, whatever you do, don't let anybody ever make you into a cripple. And then at the end, she tells him, I'm so proud of you. But after all, you still let yourself become a cripple because of drugs. And that's what has him <laughs> go to rehab to get clean. And then he has the resolution with his brother's death. And oh, man, mm-hmm. I just I didn't feel any second I didn't of feel that. those either. Unfortunately, it would have been great if actually some, if he told somebody about that dream that he was forgiven and someone challenged, called him out on it. Yeah. That was your dream. That doesn't mean that would be interesting. Yes. Because, but I don't think the movie is asking us to do that. It wants us to believe all that. Yeah. 40 years of baggage and guilt just washed away. Mm -hmm. Okay. Go ahead. Sorry. I steamrolled you. Here's my golden take back previous rewind to the previous chapter Mm -hmm. of our, of our podcast. My golden take is that biopics um, are often dishonest about their subjects, but it's basically out of necessity because 
we don't get into the mind of a real person. This is the power of fiction because you do get into the mind. The mm. author knows the motivation, the weakness, the self-deception of his invented character. But it's impossible for us to truly know a person in real life and what their emotional arcs are. So I think what that leaves you with is the movie maker has to kind of be creative and invent. Um, there's, there's the beginning of an arc and how does it resolve? Well, we don't really know because that person isn't going to go into their deep, dark secrets and tell us really what they felt. So we have to invent the last half of the arc. There might be certain things, you know, some certain, certain things from the biography you can call to, to turn into the arc, but inherently this is what is problematic about biopics. However, it's very tempting to do them. And I always find myself kind of excited about them because you kind of under, you feel like you're going to get a new understanding of history or a famous person. Um, and although it's basically an illusion for doing that, but you feel like you're kind of getting to know a famous person in an intimate way. Unfortunately, that is also an illusion because they have to make this up. So here's two examples of things that I found out later that were stretched that made me really have a problem with the movie. One of them is that Ray actually did try to get his brother out of that tub. The brother did die in a tub, mm -hmm. but he ran inside to tell his mother what happened. And he did have nervous breakdowns, but they weren't because of the brother. They were apparently because his mother died. So they, they, they totally used an emotional arc that might've been there for the mother and they used it with the brother instead. But apparently I forget where I read this, but that wasn't quite there. So that kind of makes you feel even more like they're not only, it almost feels like exploitation of, of the character and, uh, and of those, of those real people. The second thing is that when Ray Charles is going and you know, he, he's, uh, he's going to go play a, a show in Georgia and there are these activists protesting and they say, don't go in there. It's segregation. You can't do it. And he's like, has this moment. You know what? They're right. We're leaving. It's a brave moment, right? Yep. Well, in reality, the organizers of that protest and they interviewed them in later, in some later interview, um, they didn't know about the, the show until it was too late. So they sent him a telegram and he got the telegram, changed his mind, decided not to do it. So that's okay. I'll, I'll, I'll give him a little, I'll give him a little license on that. But, but the thing is Georgia in the movie bans him from playing in the state. And then they bring him back and say, your ban is lifted and we're going to make Georgia on my mind, our official song. Well, they did make Georgia on my mind, the official song, but they never banned him in the first place. And mm -hmm. so when they bring him back and say, the ban is now lifted, that's this heroic, you know, we're writing moment. a wrong. It's another unearned redemption. We're, we're writing a wrong from the past that never actually happened. And that's supposed to be the emotional payoff of his professional arc. Hmm. I don't know. That's a problem to me. I know that we've had sort of, this yeah, has been yeah. a common thread in the podcast. How much do you care that that was true or not? Um, I have a problem when they stretch things too far because it's the whole point of the movie is biopic. It's, True, true life. We're getting to meet a famous person, understand his story. But how much of it do you trust? See, I think that is where we fundamentally disagree because I don't think that the whole point of the movie is to understand the subject's life. I think the whole point of the movie is whatever the, the subject accomplished in his life inspired 
us as a culture so much that we want to be engrossed in that world in some kind of way. And the movie is just sort of a byproduct of that inspiration. And so the movie, in a way, should be its own creative act inspired by the creativity that, you know, spawned this whole thing to begin with. If I wanted to see a movie that just was hardline facts about somebody's life, then there are documentaries watch for that. Documentary, yeah. Exactly. So in it's basically I, mythologizing Ray Charles. And yeah. I guess you have to accept that this is a myth. Yes. I think if you accept that, it, give, it, it gives you so much more freedom to be yeah. interesting and not bound to these benchmarks. But also, I think that you're describing the problem of a biopic like this that endeavors to try to cover an entire life and mm-hmm. hit all the highlights rather than something like Love and Mercy, which is just about the yeah. Beach Boys making pet sounds. And that's it. That's it. Yep. So you can focus on just this one specific moment in time and you can break these songs down. We can get these really interesting sequences where we see how things are built. We can see the mind of a genius at work, all that kind of stuff without trying to figure out every single thing about, you know, why this person is the way that he is. What were his parents like? What were his child? You know, mm-hmm. like the baggage is there. It makes him more complicated if every piece of the baggage isn't laid out in front of us to try to you know it's it's it comes back to the showing and not telling thing these kinds of benchmarks are just it's just telling 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 and then we're supposed to put the pieces together to say oh now i understand why he is the way that he is rather than feeling any of it through showing it has the impact same impact as basically name dropping yeah you know remember we, george on my mind we remember got, mess around. we got that when this happened you know I, I got the idea for that and then you move on and it never happens again the only reason that it was there is because it's fun to hear how, you know, all these famous things happened. Questions. <laughs> <laughs> all right, go first, Brian. The size should be our, uh, our, our signal to change <laughs> agenda items. Yeah, I'm good with that. Okay. My question to you is, <clears throat> um, why did people like Ray Charles? Hmm. Because he seems like a pretty, he's very charismatic well, actually, let me go back. There's a music critic named Robert Christgau. Christgau? I'm not sure how to pronounce his name. Fox does the impossible, radiates something approaching the charisma of the artist he's portraying. And I'm wondering, unquote, I'm wondering, did you feel like there was this charisma that made you feel like, I can see why all the women wanted him and everyone wanted to be around him? Hmm. I don't know. Um, I think that I, I think that a certain level of talent is evident, and that gives somebody yeah. a certain level of confidence that mm-hmm. you know emanates. So, like, there's got to be a reason why this blind guy on stage is able to to do what he's doing and make a crowd come alive. It makes in the way you he, wonder what he has because he seems to be overcoming this big obstacle. Yeah, yeah, and he never doubts himself throughout all of it. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I think that gives him a little extra something as well but i think i mean as a culture i think the people liked him so much because of that that mixing of mm-hmm. um he was he was he was new and he was different from what was being made but he wasn't so so far removed mm-hmm. from the, the sort of institution that it it was like racy without being too controversial you might have some you know religious people in the south that were offended but mm-hmm. i don't think that as a whole that was the um you know the the common feeling so it's almost like we're getting away with something by by listening to this music that's mm-hmm. a little bit sinful but still acceptable small revolutions yeah more more successful more commercially successful than big revolutions 
Yes. And small revolutions can lead to big ones. They can. My question to you, Jamie Foxx, not only won an Oscar for best picture, I mean, best, (laughs) best actor. He also won a BAFTA Rex Reed the observer. He said, Jamie Foxx's all encompassing performance in the title role more than justifies the early Oscar gossip. It is generated. Dustin Thompson, Washington post says, Fox does what he's supposed to. He steals his own show. And Mark LaSalle, San Francisco Chronicle, says it takes all of five seconds tops to believe that Jamie Foxx is the young Ray Charles. So how did you feel about his performance just kind of broadly? Because on top of winning those awards, this was kind of his breakout role as as a leading actor. You know, he'd done dramas before this and Ali, Michael Mann's movie, he was in that. You Mm -hmm. mentioned a, a couple of the other ones and even Sunday he was in. Um, but mostly he was kind of like a sitcom music guy, Jamie Foxx show in living color. So how did this performance hit you? Well, one of the problems, one of the reasons that I don't think that it's like a total shoe in, you know, like compared to say last year's, um, monster performance by Charlize Theron. This is not in that ballpark in my opinion. Yeah. Um, although, you know, he was, by far and away, he's, he won tons of awards for this, for this performance. I think that inherently there is a problem with showing the act, the actor and the emotion without ever seeing his eyes. It's, Hmm. it's kind of like a physical limitation of the movie making. Um, he was incredible at impersonating the, the person and the actions. Although I was always wondering if there's going to be an explanation of why the body language of Ray Charles was how it was. Cause he seemed like when he was growing up, he was running around like a regular kid. And then he, he kind of like, he leans, he has like kind of sort of herky jerky moments or movements. I, I I'm sorry if that's offensive, if there's some condition he has, I don't know, but I was kind of wondering if that was going to ever be explained because it seemed like it intensified as he got older. Um, so as far as like imitating Ray Charles, and like depicting, um, you know, it's sort of like the, uh, the Bob Dylan movie that has Kate Blanchett. What's that called? Uh, it's not, I'm not there, but it's something like that. Yeah. <laughs> I forget. I know, I know, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> well, they basically, um, perfectly imitated some documentary, um, scenes and they just like exactly replicated them. I'm not there. I'm not there. Yeah. I'm sorry. Is that what I said? I don't know. Maybe not. Wasn't listening. (laughs) (laughs) You're already thinking of uh, what might have been, aren't you? (laughs) Always. Um, But so it it felt more like an impersonation than it was an incredible acting moment. Yes. The impersonation element, I think, is very, very big. Mm -hmm. I didn't think about the eyes. I think that's kind of interesting. That didn't really hit me when I was watching. Yeah. But I like Jamie Foxx a lot as an actor. I, I think he's Jamie crazy Fox. talented. Me too. As I was researching him more for this this episode, and you see him, I I, I sent um I sent you that. I think it was an In Living Color um episode or something. But anyway, it was from us doing where he and another guy are like doing a dance off mm-hmm. to Michael Jackson. Yeah, and he's like perfectly doing these Michael Jackson moves. Yeah, he can do everything. He was, he, he, he had hit records, like legit hit records, <laughs> billboard top, top 100 top records. Yeah. And all this acting and comedy. I mean, he can, he, he's like so super, super talented. Incredible. Yeah. And he's great in collateral too this year, which yeah, I haven't, I haven't seen in a long time. I'm looking forward no, to it. Collateral is great. So yeah, he's, he's kind of a powerhouse, but 
not to be reductive. <laughs> oh, no. I feel like oh, no. part of the hype around this movie might come, around his performance, I mean, might come from the fact of it is his breakout role. So mm-hmm. there's a little bit of like, oh, hey, look, this guy could really act. And that's sort of, you know, surprising in a way. Like you said, I think part of it comes from the fact that he's doing a very good imitation mm-hmm. of Ray Charles. But also there's that disability thing with the Academy that I think mm-hmm. that we've seen over the years. That they <laughs> that they have this inclination toward being impressed with performances um, of characters who have either mental or physical disabilities. I mean, there's a track record of that. Paul Giamatti with the voice, Harvey Picard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I think that his performance here is is solid i think it's very good Mm -hmm. but i can't really give you a list of times where i felt wowed like i I was never really impressed you know so to think best actor seems a little steep i mean dicaprio aviator that's a really Mm -hmm. good performance even giamatti in sideways i mean there is like a Mm -hmm. ton of pathos in that in that character Mm -hmm. and he's i don't know it's just impersonation doesn't say to me Act, best actor and a lot of those reviews that i read were like man this guy really looks like ray like, charles you felt like, like you're sitting next to ray charles exactly and that's just not what i'm looking for i want to feel what it feels like <laughs> to be ray charles you know i want to feel the emotion of the character exactly that's what the acting does exactly and I, often with as little as as little um you know expression as is needed yeah. But the more power coming from the little expression, that's what really wows me with, with – I've been listening to this production of Romeo and Juliet from night, the 70s, a radio production. And everything's way over the top. <laughs> you know, It's funny because Ian McKellen is Romeo. Oh, really? Nice. <laughs> but everything's way over the top because you're going to have to on radio and that's how Shakespeare always used to be done. Um, but – Less is more, you know, the more we are into the movie age and away from the, you know, purely the stage age, stage age, less is more. Yeah. What might've been, what might've been, I just have a couple things. Denzel Washington was offered to play this role. Hmm. Very different energy from Denzel. Right? Indeed. And I don't know how would he have done because Jamie Foxx can legitimately sing, but it's lip syncing in this. Is it all? I mean, mo- sure? most of it. Huh. Okay. Well, he he is he is a singer also, um, so it was, I I thought all the singing was believable. That's interesting. I didn't know it was. So, Denzel could have been Ray Charles. Jamie Fox also auditioned for Rod Tidwell in Jerry Maguire. Went to Cuba Gooding Jr. But could you imagine Jamie Fox in that role? Do you remember seeing Jerry Maguire? Right? I assume I have. I have. <laughs> um, I I just pulled up an article here about mm-hmm. lip sync just to fact check myself yeah, yeah, here please thank you. and the first one i saw was fox does not sing them he skillfully lip syncs skillfully <laughs> wow yeah so i mean <laughs> yes he, i've heard him sing before and yeah. he does have a good voice he can sing but i guess ray charles has such a specific voice that, that they used his actual voice yeah oh, which I, I would prefer if they didn't honestly mm-hmm. i would rather hear somebody that doesn't sound exactly like ray charles but i can still get that sort of um, you know, where you feel like you're in the presence of real natural talent. Right, yeah. That's a little bit more impressive to me than, than a pitch perfect, uh, imitation. Right. But, but anyway, thank you for that fact check. Sure, sure. On to trivia. Uh, during high school, Jamie Foxx played quarterback. Of course. That's kind of cool. As a second grader, this one I love as a second grader, Jamie Foxx was so talented in telling jokes that his teacher used him as a reward. If the <laughs> class behaved, 
We'll let Jamie Foxx tell you some more jokes. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> I love it. In Ray, Jamie Foxx wore prosthetic eyelids. Hmm. Interesting. So that he, so that the so eyes that would be closed, but which, he could still see? Which made him virtually blind. Oh, apparently. okay. All right. It's hard to keep your eyes closed that long and that hard. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess you would move differently if you Maybe if so. you didn't have the safety net of just being able to open your eyes if you weren't sure where you were. Um, more realistic blind character. Is it Jamie Foxx in Ray or is it, um, what's her name? Zi Zhang in House Zhang of Flying Daggers. Zhang Zi. Oh, yeah, I, yeah. I love her in that. The blindness in that movie drives me crazy. Though. I mean, the, anyway, <laughs> it's nothing in that movie supposed to really make sense. But I do. I, I just love how she, I mean, we're getting into a House of Flying Daggers tangent here. But I love how in all of those fight scenes, how she's always kind of looking like. Yeah, but it's so unrealistic. And then other times she's like are, waving her arms around like a zombie, like she can't are see Are we going to say, are we going to criticize House of joke. Flying Daggers it's for being unrealistic? It's too fantasy. It's too fantasy for me. <laughs> Okay, another trivia. Fox is the second actor to receive an Academy Award for Best Actor and to have a number one Billboard single, Gold Digger by Kanye West, because he's the yeah, opening. Yeah. opening. Um, the first was Bing Crosby. Hmm. Jamie Foxx has, right now, has six movies in post-production. Six, wow. He's also filming or announced in four other movies. So we're going to see a whole lot more Jimmy, Jamie Foxx in the next year or two. I'm down. Okay. This one's about Kerry Washington, who was his wife in the movie. Okay. Her high school dancing teacher was Jennifer Lopez. <laughs> what? Yeah. All right. Keep it or kick it, Mike. It's an easy kick for me, Brian. So I wondered at the end of this two and a half <laughs> hours if I would have just preferred a documentary like I brought up before. And I think I would. Yeah. You get rid of the lip syncing. You have real footage. We would get true accounts spoken from people who knew them. And in a movie that really is just trying to give us a full account of Ray Charles' life, that almost seems more valuable because he had an amazing life. But I'm just not sure that this movie, like as its own cinematic piece of creative work, adds a whole lot you know, to, to his story. If you, I think that this is the question that should be asked with every biopic. How will this movie be better than a documentary about this person? If yes. you cannot answer that in a really great way, then just make the documentary. Yeah. And I think of that epilogue. Um, that's the one time that we see real footage in the movie. It, you brought up the moment before when he goes back to Georgia and they quote, welcome him home or welcome him back. And they give him a medal for protesting that segregated show. And then text comes on the screen that says, and he never forgot his roots because he donated a bunch of money before he died. And it's cool that he gave the money. Away. Oh, it just feels so pandering and hero <laughs> worshipy. Yeah. And even though this movie is only what, 17, 16 years old, 17 years. Yeah. It feels like a relic of a bygone era. To so me. are there, am I crazy? I was wondering because you keep complaining about biopics and I'm starting to complain about them a lot more too, just cause maybe rubbing off on me. Mm -hmm. But are, do they do biopics quite as often now as they did in this period where we're doing they, they still make a lot of them, yeah. but I think that they've kind of learned from this style of biopic. Maybe we don't so. see as many life to death. Yeah. I mean, you think about Darkest Hour, it's just about, you know, yeah. a, a small part of a war. A year, you think about so, Love and yeah. Mercy, it's just about pet sounds. Um, I'm sure that there are, you know, birth to death biopics, but like this one in particular, it's just... 
it's this kind of movie that feels 100% tailor-made for this award show, Mm -hmm. you know, where it's structurally sound. (laughs) It's like, it's a well-made movie. There's not huge complaints other than, you know, I feel like it's formulaic and yada, yada. Um, but just so safe and, and unsurprising. And I'm with Peter Rayner, New York Magazine and Vulture. He said, sure, it's the Jamie Foxx breakout role, but the movie around it is so systematically, quote, inspirational that it comes perilously <laughs> close to sabotaging the breakout. And that was a positive review. Mm. So before you tell me how you're voting, listen to this one last quote I have for you. It's going to change my mind, I can tell. <laughs> it's from critic Charles Taylor, <laughs> Salon, and then React. Okay. He says... Any viewers who look at Ray and see only cliches are declaring themselves hopelessly lost to the real achievement of this picture, which is nothing less than a statement of faith in the inclusiveness of American culture. Brian, am I hopelessly lost? You are. React. Statement of faith in the, what is it, in the inclusiveness of American culture? This movie is nothing less than a statement of faith in the inclusiveness of American culture. If... (laughs) It's a bold take. Talk that, about golden takes. He was going for a real golden. I haven't one there. read. I haven't read the full uh, the full review there. But if anything, um, <laughs> I love how you're speechless. Inclusiveness. There is very little risk to including um, a incredibly talented, innovative, revolutionary black singer yeah into american culture yeah and one with a disability that's because the, that's super inspiring and newsworthy it's the kind of story that that catches mm-hmm. eyeballs and yes america embraced his music and he was an icon but to say that this is about inclusiveness is just assuming s- that like america is a pure meritocracy which yeah. it is not and it's not and it's not bringing in the fact that every person who gave him that extra stage you know on which to be discovered profited from him or straight up exploited him. You know, his first manager was stealing from him because he's blind. Mm -hmm. And then he, he made that small indie label what it is. They became noteworthy because of his music. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like, you know, this is undeniable. We should just give this guy a shot. It was like, well, no, we can profit off of him too. In fact, I think this is maybe one of the good things about the movie and might be, I'm going to give the guy the benefit of the doubt that maybe this is partly where he's going. I don't know, but, um, the fact that it was not that much about race was, I think, a refreshing thing about the movie. There was that segregation moment, but yeah. other than that, it was mostly about him being blind and overcoming blindness. Yeah, um, He surrounded himself with other fellow black businessmen, and it wasn't like he was being like, you know, treated like less of a person because he was black. Mm-hmm. And in that way, you know, making race secondary, I thought, was kind of a good thing about the movie and it made yeah, it more about the music, um, which is what I think it was hopefully trying to do. I also will kick the movie off its Oscar pedestal. I wish there was more genius mode. And I also didn't really feel the emotions of the characters. And that's what it ultimately comes down to with, yeah. with any kind of art, you know, I want to be moved and I didn't really feel moved enough. So in our next episode, we will be doing a bonus episode chosen by none other than Mike (laughs) on Shaun of the Dead, a horror comedy starring Simon Pegg. Just in time for Halloween season. Horror movie month, Brian, my favorite time of year. 
We want to hear from you. Let us know how wrong are we about Ray? Are biopics actually the best kind of movie? Maybe, Maybe they, they are. are. Let us know. We'd love to hear your takes. You can find us at bestpicturethis.com on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or by telling your smart speaker to play Best Picture This. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Best Picture This. And for 15 years of golden takes, head over to Letterboxd where you'll find me, Mike Cavallari. What was your original stars for Ray? This is a two. In 2000, when did you oh, watch Oh, this first? is the first time I've seen this oh, movie. Is it? Yeah. Okay, yeah, that's right. Same here. To support this show and help select a movie for a bonus episode, visit patreon.com slash bestpicturethis. Thanks to WNZF and our illustrious producer, Mark Gilliland. And please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen. Thank you very much for listening. And just because our audience has been so well-behaved, your reward is you can now hear Mike tell some dad jokes. Ooh. Or not. Lesser of two weevils. (laughs) 